This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, Citizen Radio, The Onion Radio News, The Tom Hartman Program, Slate Magazine, Mumia Abu Jamal, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for Apple iOS and Android app users from Rachel Maddow. I just plowed through the FBI's 191-page internal investigation of its own spying on domestic political groups, and what I read doesn't reassure me. In fact, if you're engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience or in direct action, your odds of having an FBI file on you seem pretty high. And if the case of the FBI spying on the Thomas Merton Peace and Justice Center in Pittsburgh is any indication, the FBI will try to cover its tracks. In 2002, a local G-man wrote a memo on the Thomas Merton Center's anti-war activity. The agent also had taken photographs of a woman perceived to be of Middle Eastern descent who was attending the anti-war rally. When Senator Leahy questioned FBI Director Mueller about the spying in a Senate hearing back in 2006, Mueller provided false information. He didn't do so intentionally, the report says, but because he relied on material prepared by the Pittsburgh office, which had engaged in an after-the-fact reconstruction to make it look better than it was. Nice. Also deeply troubling is the wide latitude the FBI has to identify political protesters as potential terrorists and put them on the watch list. Obama ought to narrow that latitude in a hurry. Mexican uh, girl who got tasered by police officers. Yes. I, I, I'm seriously, I can't understand these stories. I can't understand how police officers can justify tasering a 14 year old girl in the head. But we have video of this. Um, Ouch! Those Jesus. are the damages uh, that the taser did to the Yeah, those are stitches. Yeah, that's that didn't work out. All right, uh, you know, we're going to. Oh, and then her face, too. Man, that's nasty. Now, by the way, we'll explain a lot of the story here as we go forward with the video, etc. But one thing I want to tell you is the cop says, look, in the middle of the argument, she started running into the street. And so I had to take, and she wasn't looking which way she was going. So basically, in order to protect her, because she might get run over, I had to taser her. So that's why she took one in the head. Okay, one in the head and one in the hip. And then this was, was it right? The one that went in her head, Got into her, according to the officials, got into her brain a little bit. Oy, and that's why they, you see those devastating stitches that you see right there. All right, now let's check out the story on it and then come back and talk about it. More controversy over tasers, this time because a New Mexico police chief tasered a teenager in the head. The 14-year-old girl's mother says she and her daughter were arguing, so she drove to the police station to get help. The girl ran off. The police chief caught up with her at a nearby park. He says he ordered her to stop, but she then ran into the street without looking for traffic. The officer fired his remote taser at her, hitting her in the skull and hip. She had to have surgery. Don't tase me, bro! Don't tase me! 
Yeah. Look, cops, you got to, look, I've said this a million times, you got to have a little bit of sense. These tasers aren't toys. They're throwing the taser out every opportunity they get. Like, what do you think, a little unruly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. It's go time. It's a 14-year-old girl. And I didn't even know that the taser things go into your body. I didn't know that either. I mean, and that thing goes, that went all the way into her head. Mm -hmm. Have some sense, dude. I mean, they got into a silly fight with her mom over cell phones or something. And then she comes and since she, the girl's being unruly, asks for the cop's help. This is not helping the mom. How terrible do you think that mom feels right now, though? Oh. That she went to the cops. Yeah. And, and instead of helping the situation, they made it just a million times worse. Right. And now, of course, they're considering action against the cops. And I think that that's justified. And you know what the cops are going to say. They're like, you know, they come and ask for our help. And then when we taser their 14-year-old daughter, then they're going to turn around and sue us. Yeah, because that's not how you help. Okay. Do you think that cops are under the assumption that tasers cannot, you know, cause permanent damage to a person's health? Because, I mean, I have to be honest with you. I didn't know that a taser had the ability to do that to someone. So maybe police officers are under that assumption? I don't know. I mean, I gotta hope that when they give out the tasers that they give a little, you know, instructions with it. It doesn't seem like it. Because it's if they did, I think they would be a little more careful when they use a taser. I, my, I have a theory on this. I think they think they're in Star Trek. And they're like, the phasers are on stun. It'll be fine. I've seen it. They get stunned and then they get back up later. It's fine. No, you schmucks. That does some real damage, as you can tell. Be cool with the taser. Be cool with it. Okay, put it down. Don't use it unless it's a real emergency. And you think, eh, should I shoot the guy and put a bullet in him? Now let me taser him. Okay, now if you use that standard, and we'd like to help here on the Young Turks, that's why I just came up with this standard. Would you think, ah, should I shoot the 14-year-old girl going across the street? No, let me taser her. See, you wouldn't do that, right? Because it wouldn't even occur to you to shoot her. Mm -hmm. Only use it if you're about to shoot someone and you think, let me use a little less lethal force. I'm the most reasonable guy in America. It's over. I'm glad you think that of yourself. <laughs> Congratulations. It's over. I'm the most reasonable guy in America. Tasers. <laughs> Holding 50,000 volts in the palm of my hand makes me feel like Zeus. And if I remember my Greek mythology, nothing can go wrong when man considers himself equal to the gods. This is Current Events. Recently in El Reno, Oklahoma, 
A concerned grandson called 911 to report that his 86-year-old grandma was so despondent he was worried she would hurt herself. So police tried to cheer her up with a little trip to the juice bar. Police say they tased Lona Varner, who uses an oxygen machine and can barely walk. Although officers report she sure can't jump. <laughs> and these cops, these cops had no option but to tase her. There were only 10 of them. And when 10 cops stormed into her room, she, quote, took a more aggressive posture on the bed. She aggressively adjusted her craftmatic from supine to recumbent. But the cops held off until she reached under her pillow and pulled out a kitchen knife, screaming, get the f out of here. I will stab you and kill you. I killed four Japs in World War II. Good for you. Good for you. Now, that doesn't sound that crazy until you learn that during World War II, she was stationed in Ohio. Okay, so she has a knife, and she's fighting on her home turf. The police had to tase her twice. Remember, an 86-year-old has the strength of two 43-year-olds. Do the math. Of course, the woman and her grandson are now suing the city of El Reno. But there's no case here, folks. Remember, the 911 call said she might hurt herself. And I believe that should be left to professionals. Oh, that sizzling sound means it's time for Future Shock, where we get a taste of the future of non-lethal force once we unswallow our tongues. Nation, this may shock you, but the next generation of tasers will not. Enter the Dazer Laser. A powerful laser gun, which can temporarily blind and disorient a suspect. Yes, the Dazer laser. The future is bright, followed by prolonged darkness. And the beauty of this product lies in its simplicity. Minimal training, it's not hard to aim, aim a light at somebody. And nothing makes me feel safer than the idea of a minimally trained police force with the power to blind. But most importantly, the Dazer laser proves what I've long suspected. Police will embrace any weapon that ends with Azer. It's only a matter of time before we're subduing suspects with the Mazer or the Glazer, which covers perks with a thick layer of Cinnabon icing. And anyone who's ever had a Cinnabon knows they will render you immobile. And that was Future Shock. Last but not least, folks, a heartwarming tale. Actually, it heats up all the organs to a certain degree. It's about a taser being used to take down the number one threat to America, bears. Yes. Recently, a bear tried to break into the home of Alaska Police Lieutenant Dave Parker, and he turned that grizzly into a sizzly. Jim? Prongs hit the bear in the shoulder, and the bear promptly inverted uh, with its legs up in the air and started spinning around. He didn't just incapacitate that bear, he made it break dance. I say good job, officer. Unfortunately, no good deed goes untased, and the officer's superiors took away exactly the wrong lesson from the incident, and they issued a public statement advising Alaskans not to tase bears. Really? What other options do we have? Bears are immune to all other police tactics. 
You can't use racial profiling, because I'll say it, all black bears look alike to me. And you know you can't interrogate them. Bears just see good cop, bad cop as entree cop, dessert cop. Well, that's it for current events, folks. Join us next time when I show you a convenient trick for getting your kids out of the pool. This poor woman uh, is pulled over on the side of the road, and she's going to get a traffic ticket. And apparently, for whatever reason, she has to sign her ticket, which is already a dumb system. What if you have someone who doesn't want to sign the ticket? Then you're going to have trouble for no good reason when you didn't need that kind of trouble. Just give them the ticket like they do in another state. But no, she's got to sign it. So a cop decides, since the 72-year-old grandmother is not going to sign the ticket, guess what he has to do to her? He has to taser her. All right, watch. They even the cops were so bad here they even lost Fox and Friends. Imagine. Let's watch this clip. High drama on the Texas highway caught on tape, and it ends with a 72-year-old great-grandmother being tasered. Watch this. Police say it started when she refused to sign a speeding ticket and started dis disobeying officers. So they tased her. Oh, Get over here now. Give it to me and I'll sign it. Oh, 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 you're going to stop me? Ma'am, you're going to stop the Wow. Uh, she was squaring off of them. Police say the women continued to ignore orders, so they took action. I am saying overreacted, officer. Yes, officers insisted they acted by the book. What book is that? The grandma was taken to jail and released. She insists she is innocent. Don't chase me, bro! Don't chase me! No, we got to take the tasers away from the cops. They're out of control, man. First of all, did you hear her? She said, all right, I'll sign it. And that's when the guy shoved her. What are you shoving a 72-year-old grandmother for? As if that wasn't bad enough. She's like, okay, okay, she's walking to get subdued, and he tasers her to the ground. And she's screaming, hey, what kind of a sicko tasers a 72-year-old grandmother to get her to sign a stupid ticket? And, of course, the police in Texas say, uh, no, don't worry, uh, we were just following protocol. That's your protocol? Then you might want to look into your protocol. There's got to be a better way for somebody to handle somebody not signing a ticket. Jesus, man, did you hear her screaming on the ground? No, 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 the cops are having too much fun with these tasers. The minute anybody's like, oh, he, they're like, huh? They're looking for an opportunity. They're like, did you look at me kind of weird? What's happening? They think it's like a movie or something. They think it's hangover. Like, <laughs> Come on, bounds of reason, man. 
Take away their tasers. They apparently don't know how to be responsible with it. Thank God they didn't shoot her. Right now, our interview with Digby, who can be read at digbysblog.blogspot.com. The three of us write a lot about tasering, and for some reason, even within the liberal community, there's a huge lack of empathy for tasering victims. Why do you think normally compassionate people have such a lack of humanity on an issue that literally results in electrocution injury and sometimes death? Uh, well, that's a, a really good question. I mean, I think I thought about this because... Um, it does strike me as odd because I have a very strong visceral reaction when I see it. It's I, I don't laugh. I, I don't find it funny in the least. It actually turns my stomach. And I, I don't know whether or not that's just me. I don't think I have a peculiar view of violence I, that, you know, different than, than other people. I mean, it's, I'm not, you know, ultra sensitive. I'm not crazy about it, but I don't go out of my way to avoid it in movies or anything like that. So... I don't really know why that is. I think what may have happened is that it's been portrayed um, as as being less severe than it really is. I think people have gotten the idea that this is just that it's not as as horrifyingly painful as it as it is, and that it's survivable. Although when you see people who um, have had, you know, they submit themselves to it. You can tell that I mean it's it's really painful, and they say don't do it again. You know, it's rare that you see like a reporter or somebody who will submit themselves to it. They don't like it, um, but for whatever reason, it's become kind of an object of you know of humor. It's got a there's a certain slapstick quality to it. The whole "don't tase me, bro" thing I think was kind of contributed to that. The YouTube I mean it's sickening if you watch the if you go to YouTube and and see. You know, tasering after tasering, the comments in them are just to me, it's it's repulsive. Um, and and yet, you know, it seems to be, be that seems to be part of the problem. The more people see it, the less serious they think it is, which is a very strange, perverse effect of having you know having the YouTube culture. Well, it's weird because even like on my Facebook or Ali's Twitter where we have, and you get this too, largely progressive readerships, you know, I remember when I posted the video of the the guy being tased for running on the baseball field, suddenly I had all of my friends, you know, these liberal friends being like, well, we shouldn't have been on the field, bro. And... <laughs> Or like, well, we're lo- he, the guy's lucky that the cop didn't just shoot him. <laughs> and do you see this kind of acceptance and, and this apathy as a sign for a greater acceptance of the police state in general? Yes. 
Absolutely, no doubt about it. I, I what I've what I have. I mean, there are two things. First of all, when I first started writing about tasers, maybe five years ago, um, again, I was just horrified by the fact that police were doing this. Now, I had been under the same impression everyone was, which was that this was truly a. I thought at first it was sort of a revolutionary, you know sign of technological progress that cops would use these things in place of lethal force and I thought well isn't that kind of great that you know they can they have a tool now that doesn't actually kill people in situations where they normally would have you know injured them severely or killed them um, and when I first realized that police I saw a, a video down and it was I think it was from Miami the Miami Herald did a big series on it some years back and it was a, a traffic stop where the cop just, you know, basically just tasered this woman sitting behind the wheel of her car, off, you know, completely non-threatening. But it was compliance. And that's when the alarm went off in my head. I went, oh, this isn't in place of lethal force. It's to enforce compliance. This is what cops are using it for. It is to make people comply. And over time you realize that you become, that what it does is the more you see it, and, and especially since people don't take it seriously um, and think it's kind of a, you know, a light uh, sort of punishment, um, that we become inured to this and start to believe that we must comply. <laughs> Instantly, no questions asked to anything a police officer says. And obviously, the cops have come to believe that, too. So what I used to observe always, you know, in, in rare interactions I'd had with police in my life, you know, they were pretty common-sense guys, very good at psychology usually and good at sort of talking people down from emotional situations. Part of their job, like in domestic situations, was to do that. They had all kinds of techniques to, to uh, diffuse these sort of situations, and certainly in dealing with the, with the mentally ill uh, and homeless and, and the sort of disenfranchised people who are just the horrible victims of this tasering. They're the ones who are getting it the worst of anybody. Um, and cops had ways of dealing with it. Well, since this has happened, since the advent of the taser, it's just the first, that's their go-to thing, and they're doing it even when people are in custody. Even when people are are uh, in jail or you know on the scene, they're um, they're handcuffed. You see this all the time, where somebody's on the ground and refuse. They're still yelling or you know resisting verbally, and the cop just tases them. So it's not it's not about actually stopping them from doing you know from committing a dangerous act. It's to get them to comply unquestioningly with police. And the more we see it, the more we become inured to that. And that's the part, the civil liberty side of this, that is, it's very difficult to write about. I mean, that may just be because I'm inadequate as a writer, or perhaps it's just a difficult subject. But this is the part that really scares me. It's this sort of slow, encroaching um, police state attitude in which, you know, we have a, a nation now that's devoting huge amounts of resources and tax dollars into policing in a million different ways, especially since 9-11. Um, and we have all these technological tools that are forcing people to do it. It's like, you know, I've written this many times, you know, if you build the police state, it will come. I mean, you know, this is, this is how it works. So, so, you know, this is just one of the, there's many prongs to this kind of, prongs is a, no pun intended, um, is, is a, you know, it's a many faceted 
story of the encroaching police state in America for a number of different reasons. Tasers are, to me, one of the most uh, obvious ones and and particularly frightening in the sort of insidious way they're kind of um, accustomizing the population to, uh, you know, denying themselves their own rights in dealing with the government. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. It's the Onion Radio News. A stoned, underage, drunk driver calls America a fascist police state. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Outraged by the brutal suppression of his civil liberties, 15-year-old Corey Shiflett of Smyrna, Georgia, denounced America as, quote, a total fascist police state. Shiflett, who was arrested for drunk driving last night, had this to say from a county holding cell as he waited for a friend to post $500 bail this morning. This whole country is like Hitlered out, man. These cops will use any excuse to pull us over an assless just so they can feel like fucking Superman. Upon his release, Shiflett kicked over several orange highway cones and loudly vowed to move somewhere like Amsterdam, where he would be free to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. I want to break free. So will we become a nation of prisoners when all prisons are privatized and pushing for more prisoners? The Wall Street Journal did a fascinating article about privatization a couple of days ago. Let's see, what was the day of this thing? August 23rd, actually, Monday. And they, they start out by talking about cities and states across the nation are selling and leasing everything from airports to zoos, a fire sale. They can help pug budget holes now, but worsen their financial woes over the long term. Keep in mind, this is from Rupert Murdoch's very conservative Wall Street Journal. Front page story. California is looking to shed state office buildings. Milwaukee's proposed selling its water supply. Chicago, New Haven, Connecticut, parking meters. Louisiana and Georgia airports are up for grab. 35 deals are in the pipeline in the U.S. right now, according to the Royal Bank of Scotland, with a market value of $45 billion, up tenfold 
from just a decade, from just two years ago, excuse me. Uh, Chicago, for example, they know, was the first city they received, or was the city that received $116 billion in 2008 to allow a consortium led by Morgan Stanley to run more than 36,000 parking meters for spaces over a 75-year period. The investors get the revenue, which this year will be more than $20 million. And, and after the deal, this, I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal, after the deal, some drivers complain about price increases as well as meter malfunctions. Quote, based, based on the new rate, the inspector general claimed the city was shortchanged by about $1 billion. A spokeswoman for Morgan Stanley declined to comment, but Stan, uh, Scott Wogskaback, an alderman who voted against the lease, said, quote, the investors will make their money back in 20 years, and we're stuck for 50 years paying, z with, the, with these meters, paying zero dollars. But the corporate private investors making a fortune. It's also happening in the prison industry, in California in particular. With us to talk about this is Leonard Gilroy. He's the director of government reform at the Reason Foundation, the conservative think tank and magazine Reason.org. And uh, he's also the editor of the annual Privatization Report, which looks at privatization trends at all levels of government. Uh, Leonard, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom, for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate your coming on. I don't understand how... I, yeah, I, I, perfect, I perfectly understand privatizing things like General Motors. I don't think anybody in this country really believes that the United States government should be in the business of making cars. Maybe over the short term to keep a company from, you know, to keep a million jobs from going away, but over the long term, no, we need to reprivatize General Motors. But why privatize prisons, for example? We have more people in prison in the United States than any other nation in the world, both in per capita terms and in absolute numbers. And the one of the most aggressive lobbies out there for stricter laws that increase the rates of imprisonment is the private prison industry. Well, Tom, uh, there's a lot in there, so let me just pull some pieces apart. Um, first of all, I mean, you, you just said something about um, the, a, an aggressive lobby, and when you actually look out there, uh, the private prison companies represent less than 10% of the prison population in the U.S., or they cover you know, to less than 10%. No, but they represented almost 100% of the lobbying effort in California for the three strikes in your outlaw in, in terms of you know, representing prisons. Um, actually, if you look out there at what the public sector, uh, public safety unions are giving to these debates, what you'd find is that they're spending vastly larger sums to enact the same kinds of laws. I think, you know, both of us would probably agree on, you know, uh, one issue here, which is, you know, I, I think most, lots of people out there would say that we should be sending less people to jail, and we should definitely be looking at sentencing reform and drug policy reform. That's something that Reason Foundation has been very vocal on. Um, but when you get down to it, you have the question of why are, are states and local governments and the federal government um, using private prisons? And the simple fact of the matter is that, that um, two big two things. I mean, you have fiscal constraints that are really squeezing these budgets, and, and folks, policymakers are having to make difficult trade-offs between education, Medicaid programs, corrections, for example. Uh, you know, in California, what it was uh, brought out last earlier this year, that, uh, you know, they're spending more now on corrections than they are on higher ed. And, you know, that for a lot of people in California, that, uh, you know, they, that seems off balance. And uh, 
But, you know, at the end of the day, the private sector is out there delivering services at a, at a lower cost under government regulation uh, through partnerships with, with these governments. But it's, so not, a, it's I, not at a lower cost. It's not at a lower cost. You're, you're, you did this study, your Reason HJTA study, and you, you're, you're saying that California is spending $162 per prisoner per diem, which is the highest in the nation. But this is based on data from the American Correctional Association, and uh, you, you don't mention that the ACA is a private, self-regulated, organization composed of former and current correction officials uh, and they receive re revenue from private prison companies. You, d you don't mention the fact that privately run prisons don't house maximum security California prisoners, which are more expensive, don't house death row prisoners, which are very expensive, don't house female prisoners, which are more expensive, don't house juveniles or prisoners with serious mental health or, or physical ailment conditions, which are very expensive, and that there's a cap of $2,500 per prisoner per year on all the health expenses that the private prison company has to pay, and you've got a large prison population with HIV, AIDS, and other serious diseases. TB is also running rampant in our prisons. And all of that, even in the private prisons, is being paid for by the public. And so, of course, it, you know, on paper it looks good, but the reality is that if you're going to have a corporation where your CEO is going to make a, a pile of money, where you're going to make enough money that you can spin off money to your stockholders, where you're going to make money that you can pay your senior executives, you've got marketing expenses, you've got lobbying expenses, that that is absolutely going to cost more than a government organization where you've got a, a you know a bunch of uh, basically green eye shaded bureaucrats making you know middle salaries and and having a decent pension yeah, except that you're missing a couple of points there. In California, prison guards are making, on average, about $73,000 a year plus, you know, benefits. And what, Would you what do that job for anything less? Well, well, what I'm well, what I'm saying is that California is spending three times the amount of on per person or per inmate than Texas, and I think about double uh, Florida, which is you know these are staggering numbers in California. Just like every other part of state government, the public employees unions have for years ruled the roost there and have been able to you know basically ex extend the spending without demonstrating any measurable uh, results. Wait a minute, let me get this right. We're talking yeah. Leonard Gilroy with the Reason Foundation, Reason.org. You're saying that that the prisons in Texas, which are notorious for violence against inmates, for horrific conditions, god-awful horrific conditions, where they pay their prison guards less than in the state of California, that that somehow that that, that we should that we should all sink to the level of Texas? No, what I'm saying is that if you look out there, California stands nearly on its own in terms of the excess in spending that they're doing in corrections. And if you look at it, well, the last 10 years, the corrections budget in California has doubled. And, you know, at the a lot of that tracks back to California being one of the few states that has a three strikes and you're outlaw. California has a lot of people in jail who you and I would agree should not be in jail. I'm exactly. I'm entirely with you on that. And if you if you read that report that you mentioned of ours, we talk about the you know the, the potential use of private prisons throughout California. But we also complement that with you know you also ha you can't just look at this as a you know privatization issue. You have larger systemic issues. That, well, of course you do. But the the going. fundamental issue is. Why would we ever want there to be a private, for-profit prison industry where you've got an industry whose main profit is made by making sure that people like you and me end up there? Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar.
Such a sexy, sexy, pretty little thing This April bitch, you got me sprung with your tongue ring And I ain't gonna lie, cause your loving gets me high So to keep you by my side, there's nothing that I won't try Butterflies in her eyes and her looks to kill Time is passing, I'm asking, could this be real? Cause I can't sleep, I can't hold still The only thing I really know is she got sex appeal I can feel, too much is never enough You always gotta lift me up when these times get rough I was lost, now I'm found, ever since you've been around You're the woman that I want, so you're putting it down Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, you're my pretty baby, I'll make your legs shake, you make me go crazy. Out of Georgia. For several weeks now, Georgia has been the site of some of the largest prison protests in years. Prisoners throughout the state, using smuggled cell phones, have coordinated self-initiated lock-ins where they refuse to leave their cells to work or recreate. One would think that such an action would please prison officials, but when prisoners organize, even to lock themselves up, prison officials get worried, and they bring out the tools with which they are accustomed. Violence, beatings, retaliatory transfers, and isolation cells. On December 9th, prisoners began their actions, seeking what sounds like unremarkable demands or reforms. Access to educational programs, fair parole procedures, decent health care, nutritional meals, pay for their labor, and an end to cruel treatment by staff. Thousands of men, black, Latino, whites, Muslims, Rastas, Christians, at Georgia's Augusta, Baldwin, Calhoun, Hancock, Hayes, Macon, Rogers, Telfair, Valdosta, and Ware State Prisons joined in this nonviolent protest. No staff members nor prison property has been either threatened or harmed. Elaine Brown, former head of the Black Panther Party, has helped these men through the Concerned Coalition to Respect Prisoners' Rights and has spoken out in support, as have Georgia's NAACP, Nation of Islam, and other groups. Some coalition members have visited Macon Prison near Atlanta to get a look at conditions. Black Agenda Radio's Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford have carried the story via the Internet around the world and the world is responding with support by emailing and phoning prison officials and Georgia politicians who support these just demands. At last report, despite government repression, the strike is spreading by leaps and bounds, as it should. From death row, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Today's story is called Toxic Persons. New research shows precisely how the prison-to-poverty cycle does its damage, and it's written by Sasha Abramsky. 
Forty years after the United States began its experimentation with mass incarceration policies, the country is increasingly divided economically. In new research published in the review Daedalus, a group of leading criminologists coordinated by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which paid me to consult on this project, argued that much of that growing inequality, which Slate's Timothy Noah has chronicled, is linked to the increasingly widespread use of prisons and jails. It's well known that the United States imprisons drastically more people than other Western countries. Here are the specifics. We now imprison more people in absolute numbers and per capita than any other country on Earth. With 5% of the world population, the U.S. hosts upward of 20% of its prisoners. This is because the country's incarceration rate has roughly quintupled since the early 1970s. About 2 million Americans currently live behind bars in jails, state prisons, and federal penitentiaries, and many millions more are on parole or probation, or have been in the recent past. In 2008, as a part of an American Exceptions series exploring the U.S. criminal justice system, New York Times reporter Adam Liptek pointed out that overseas criminologists were mystified and appalled by the scale of American incarceration. States like California now spend more on locking people up than on funding higher education. In devastating detail in Daedalus, the sociologists Bruce Western of Harvard and Becky Pettit of the University of Washington have shown how poverty creates prisoners and how prisons in turn fuel poverty, not just for individuals but for entire demographic groups. Crunching the numbers, they concluded that once a person has been incarcerated, the experience limits their earning power and their ability to climb out of poverty even decades after their release. It's a vicious feedback loop that's affecting an ever greater percentage of the adult population and shredding part of the fabric of 21st century American society. In 1980, one in ten black high school dropouts were incarcerated. By 2008, that number was 37%. Western and Pettit calculated that if current incarceration trends hold, fully 68% of African-American male high school dropouts born from 1975 to 1979 at the start of the upward trend in incarceration rates will spend time living in prison at some point in their lives. Then, given the staggering scale of black incarceration, the authors looked at the effect on employment data if prisoners were factored into the unemployment numbers generated by the government. Using that more realistic measure of unemployment, they found that fewer than 30% of black male high school dropouts are currently employed. 70% are jobless. Those are the sorts of unemployment figures one associates with failed third world states, rather than the largest, wealthiest economy on earth. And they augur ill for long-term social stability. It gets uglier. When high school dropouts buck the trend by coming out of prison and finding steady work, they overwhelmingly hit a dead end in terms of earnings. Western and Pettit found that after being out of prison for 20 years, less than one-quarter of ex-cons who haven't finished high school were able to rise above the bottom 20% of income earners, a far lower percentage than for high school dropouts who don't go to prison. They conclude that the ex-cons end up passing on their economic handicap, and by extension the propensity of ending up behind bars, 
to their children and their children's children in turn. As evidence, they cite recent surveys indicating children of prisoners are more likely to live in poverty, to end up on welfare, and to suffer the sorts of serious emotional problems that tend to make holding down jobs more difficult. University of California at Berkeley professor of law Jonathan Simon writes that these men and women in many ways become the human equivalent of underwater homes bought with subprime mortgages. They are toxic persons in the way those homes have been defined as toxic assets, condemned to failure. Last year, for the first time since 1972, the total number of people in prison in America declined. That's a good thing. It suggests that legislators, along with the broader voting public, are finally waking up to the huge and unsustainable financial costs that states are absorbing by keeping large numbers of low-end offenders locked up. But the reasons for scaling back the prison system ought not to be framed solely as a cost-cutting measure that's necessary but nasty. As this new research so clearly shows, locking up poor people in historically unprecedented numbers has undermined one of America's most durable and valuable traits, social mobility. that a district court in Texas is thinking about uh, deeming the death penalty unconstitutional in the state. And the reason why they're thinking about doing that is because of the high risk of wrongful convictions in Texas. Now just to give you an idea, since 1976, 12 people on death row uh, in Texas were exonerated. Yes, and nationwide actually 139 have, which is a huge number. And that's actually why I changed my mind on the death penalty. I was pro-death penalty before. And uh, I think, uh, theoretically, it, it might make sense, okay? But in reality, and in practice, we were set to kill 139 people who were not guilty, okay, who were innocent. And those are the guys we found out about. Mm -hmm. How about the ones we didn't find out about and already executed? So to me, that's a game, set, and match, okay? Right. That's it. You can't, like any decent human being can't say, oh, yeah, we should execute some innocent people. That, that's awesome. And it's one thing if, hey, you know what, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage and you're never going to get it perfect, okay, then you can make that argument, right? So people will still find that argument heinous in a lot of ways, but you can make it. It's not a tiny percentage. Okay? Right, a very significant percentage. Right, and in Texas, it's nearly 10% of the cases that are wrong throughout the country are in Texas. Okay, so they get it wrong all the time. Here's amazing stat number two. Uh, the people um, uh, on death row in Texas... Or, I'm sorry, the ones that have been executed, and 464 have been executed. 70% of them were minorities. Right. And Steve O and I were talking about that, and some conservatives would argue, like, ah, see, it's because all the criminals are minorities. That's what their argument will be. But that's not the case. It's because of racism that occurs in our justice system. Yeah. Now, look, here's the thing 70% of the murders in Texas did not get committed by minorities. That's crazy talk. 
So why does it turn out that 70% of the people who were executed uh, are black or minorities, right, in Texas? Well, there's actually been a lot of studies done on this, and in fact, they found out the prosecutors in the past had grotesque racial bias. And they had it uh, systematically, we try to exclude blacks from the jury, and they would play to uh, whites' racial prejudices. So this isn't something that's subtle. This isn't something like, oh, you could kind of argue maybe this or that. And so even though the number of murders, uh, white murderers might be much greater than the number of black murders, simply because there's more white people in Texas, uh, what winds up happening is the number of convicted uh, and getting the death penalty becomes much larger among minorities. And so when you look at that, you go, come on, that's obviously fundamentally unfair. Right. You know, it's not, again, it's not around the edges. It's seventy percent, okay. So no, you got to. I I think that it makes perfect sense to declare it unconstitutional. But it is Texas, so right. I would be surprised if their courts declared it unconstitutional. You would be surprised. A lot of experts in Texas right now are saying that it's not that far fetched for them to deem it unconstitutional, and I'm hoping that that's the way it ends up. Um, uh, and I'll tell you though, if they do. Republicans are going to lose their shit. Wait, but can okay. we talk about that for one they're, second? They're going to be like, no, we have to have more executions. Of course there's more black people. You know how they are. Executions. Oh, and then it's the courts that are declaring it unconstitutional? Right. Oh, my God, they're gonna, their heads are going to explode. No, but can I make one point about that really quick? You know, Republicans are the ones that most of the time are the most religious, right? They're Christians, they're, they have morals, they believe in the Bible. That's what they claim. That's what they claim, but they have no idea what's in the Bible, okay? I grew up in Sunday school, okay? And when it, we talked about the death penalty once in church. And as a Christian, you are supposed to be against the death penalty because humans are not supposed to judge whether or not another human should live or die. That is supposed to be left to God. Okay? That, that's according to the Bible. But most right-wingers don't even know that. And they, they tote themselves as, you know, the ones with the morals. Get out of here. First of all, get out of here. Okay. Second of all, <laughs> of course they don't know the Bible. How many times have we gotten over this in case after case after case? But it's not that they don't know the Bible. They don't give a damn. Right. right? I mean, Glenn Beck thinks that the biblical uh, correct thing to do is to help the rich and make sure that the poor are punished. <laughs> I mean, come on. So, redistribution of wealth. The Bible's totally against that. No, it's not. The Bible loves redistribution of wealth. <laughs> Jesus thinks it's nearly impossible for you to get in heaven if you're rich. Forget what you've done. You're rich, nearly impossible. The poor, uh, the whole point of the New Testament is to help the poor. And these guys have perverted it to the exact opposite. By the way, I think you issue the death penalty. You know who got the death penalty? Jesus. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> and what did you think about that? <laughs> you know, Jesus of Nazareth got the death penalty, and apparently that sways no one. Do you think you're such a big chat raising people from the dead? Or sleight of hand with a loaf of bread? You're a second-rate magician with everlasting life Whose latest trick is my disappearing wife? I'm as good as that guy named Jesus I could cure a cripple with a prosthesis and I can walk on water when it freezes I'm as good as that guy named Jesus And Jesus better watch his back
have now given up all hope. It seems clear that there are now no circumstances under which I am going to get an interview with George W. Bush. As of today, Mr. Bush has given interviews to five, count them, five Fox News hosts, five. He's also done interviews with CBS uh, and with NBC, and CNN is getting an interview with him this weekend. And you know, if he's doing all of these interviews and I still haven't heard squat, I, I think it's done. I think it's clear I am not going to get an interview. It is liberating in a way, though, because now I feel like I can point um, this out. On the back cover of George W. Bush's new book, Decision Points, on the back cover photo, he was wearing a jacket that says, President George W. Bush. It's embroidered on the jacket. And at the same time, he is also wearing a belt buckle. What does the belt buckle say? It says, Governor George W. Bush. So he's wearing his name twice and both of his last two job titles as well on his clothing on the back cover of his book. This is a thing about which I do not necessarily have a specific question. I just think it's amazing. And I would like to talk with Mr. Bush about it. I don't so, I, I, again, I, I don't so much have questions about the name and the job title in two places thing. I just, I would just like to draw him out about it. I think I could do that. Uh, here's something I do have a question about though. One of the ways we tried to get an interview with George W. Bush this year was by entering a Facebook contest in which you submitted questions for Mr. Bush. And if, um, I don't know if it was Mr. Bush himself, his handlers maybe, if, if they liked your questions, then you would win the cost contest and be allowed to interview him. Um, we did not win. Surprise. One of the questions we submitted, however, as part of our application uh, was this very serious one. Are you comfortable with every death sentence that was carried out under your supervision as governor of Texas. Well now, today, more than ever, I would like to have the chance to ask former President George W. Bush that question. The Texas Observer has just front-paged an astounding story about Mr. Bush's time in office as governor of Texas. Mr. Bush oversaw the executions of 152 people while he was governor there. He put 152 people to death. As governor, he had the power to say thumbs up or thumbs down in all of those cases, and 152 times he chose to put a prisoner to death. The last one, the final man executed under George W. Bush's time as governor, number 152, uh, was a man named Claude Jones. Claude Jones was convicted of murder for a killing that took place in 1989, part of a liquor store holdup in which a man was shot and killed. Now, Claude Jones says he didn't kill anyone. He didn't do it. There was only one piece of physical evidence that connected him to the murder. It was a hair that was found at the crime scene, and the prosecution said that hair belonged to Claude Jones. Turns out it didn't. Groups including the Innocence Project, a legal organization dedicated to clearing people who've been wrongfully convicted, uh, as well as the Texas Observer itself, they succeeded in getting that hair from the crime scene tested this year, 10 years after Claude Jones was executed. That test showed conclusively that the hair from the crime scene, crime scene did not belong to Claude Jones. It in fact belonged to the victim in the crime. Because the case against Mr. Jones hinged on the jury believing that he was there, because of that hair that was found at the scene, um, Mr. Jones asked that the hair be DNA tested before he was executed by the state of Texas. The state of Texas turned down that request. That request for DNA testing was actually made to then Governor George W. Bush. Governor Bush had a system in place in his office in which state lawyers prepared short summaries for him about prisoners who were due to be executed. Mr. Bush used those summaries to make a thumbs up or thumbs down decision on executions, life and death decisions. 
even though Mr. Bush had previously stated that he was in favor of DNA testing ahead of executions in capital cases, the summary his staff gave him of Claude Jones's case left out, neglected to mention that Jones had requested a DNA test of that crucial piece of evidence. Mr. Bush just read the summary, presumably, didn't look into it any further. In any event, he gave the executioner the thumbs up, and on December 7th, 2000, in the midst of the Florida recount that would ultimately name him president, almost exactly 10 years ago now, Claude Jones was killed. Joining us now is Dave Mann, senior editor at Texas Observer, who's been covering this story. Uh, Dave Mann, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, the day before Claude Jones was killed, the day before he was executed, he asked for that hair from the crime scene uh, to be tested. What do we know about what happened to that request? Well, it went nowhere, really. He requested a stay of execution uh, to, as you say, to have the hair uh, submitted for DNA testing. And he made that request to two separate Texas courts and to the governor's office. And he was turned down by both courts. And his last hope was with then Governor George W. Bush. And as you mentioned, he seemingly had uh, a good chance with the governor's office because Bush had previously ex uh, expressed support for DNA testing to verify someone's guilt before they are executed. Uh, and in fact, earlier that year, he had granted a 30-day stay of execution in another case so that uh, that prisoner could get DNA testing. And in that case, uh, the testing confirmed his guilt and that man was executed. Um, and on other occasions, Bush had expressed support for this kind of DNA testing. Um, unfortunately for Claude Jones, as you mentioned, the briefing memo that lawyers in the governor's office prepared for Bush did not mention that uh, Jones and his attorneys were requesting a stay precisely for DNA testing. In fact, the words DNA do not appear anywhere in that four-page memo. Why that is the case is a very good question. In fact, I spent a good part of today calling around to lawyers who worked in the governor's office and on this case uh, to ask them that question, and I haven't gotten any answers uh, on that yet. But uh, I do think this is one of the real tragedies of this case because um, the tests that we just conducted, the DNA tests, uh, really could have been done 10 years ago when Claude Jones was still alive. And, um, and there's a good chance that had these results um, popped up or, or been discovered in 2000, uh, there's a good chance that Claude Jones would be alive today. Why did the Texas Observer uh, as a magazine join the effort to get this evidence tested? We felt this was a real issue of the public's right to know that uh, the hair was still around in a courthouse in rural East Texas and uh, this was clearly public information that could um, confirm or overturn uh, someone's guilt in a death penalty case. And we felt very strongly that the public needs to have uh, confidence in the criminal justice system. Um, that the verdicts that are, that are being issued are correct, and if that's not the case, uh, then we need to figure out what those problems are. And so we felt, this, we felt like this case was a real um, public right to know issue, um, a public information issue, and we got involved on that basis. Barry Sheck um, from the Innocence Project, when he was asked about this, I guess he put out a statement about this today, and he attributed 
this execution to what he called a completely inadequate post-conviction review process. Obviously, leaving out from the summary that went to the governor, uh, the request for a DNA test in this case seems like there's something wrong with the system. Seems like that given the, the governor's at that time, the, his, his feelings about DNA testing, the way he had made decisions on other cases in which DNA testing was pending or possible, um, given how important that was, the fact that it was left out seems like something was wrong with this post-conviction review process. Is, is the process the same now? Has it been improved since then? Well, I think there's two possible answers to that question. Um, since we've had um, a lot of revelations recently about problems in death penalty cases, problems with forensic evidence, I do feel like Texas courts and attorneys and juries are much more aware of the potential for a wrongful conviction and a wrongful execution. So I do think there are people taking closer looks at these issues as these cases move through the system. When they get to the governor's office, however, I don't know if the process has been improved. And one of the reasons for that is because we don't have access to the documents anymore. Um, the memo that the attorneys wrote to Bush, um, were they were available, they were public information under Bush's administration. Under Rick Perry's administration, those are considered um, private documents and are no longer public information and are no longer released to the press. So we haven't seen one of these legal memos on an execution in years. We're not sure what the governor is being told. Um, from the available evidence, um, cases like the Cameron Todd Willingham arson case when there, where there's allegations of a wrongful execution as well, um, it does seem like there are problems in the process, um, certainly when you get to the governor's office. And certainly when you consider that these are not exactly appealable, um, life and death decisions here. Um, uh, Dave Mann from the uh, Texas Observer, senior editor at the Texas Observer, uh, thank you for uh, pursuing this, what I'm sure was uh, difficult and expensive investigative journalism, and thanks for taking time to join us tonight. My pleasure. It should be noted that um, uh, since Claude Jones was killed, he was the last man killed, the last prisoner killed uh, when George W. Bush was governor. Since then, the state of Texas has executed 225 more of its prisoners. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called in to leave messages on the voicemail line. I'm sorry I don't have time to get to those today. Uh, I'll get to those in the next show. I just have a lot to talk about myself. Uh, so, if, But if you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action be played on the show in the future, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, to get this out of the way, finally, we have an answer to the secret topic contest. If you missed the details on this, the question was, what secret topic am I going to be making a show about in the near future that I have not addressed since 2006. Uh, this was a big story back in 2006. It had a big update in November 2010, and I expect that there will be yet another update in early 2011. So what's the topic going to be? The other details I added on top of that is that this is a very niche issue. It's literally so niche, it's just one person. It's not a big, broad topic. So it's really basically about one guy and maybe a few people surrounding him. And then on top of that, I said that uh, the title of the episode that I created back in 2006 was actually an incredibly good hint for this contest. The title of the show was called The Hammer 
and the gavel. And so if you know about this story and you know, have you've heard of the hammer before, well, then you knew immediately who I was talking about. If you didn't, well, then you didn't know. Uh, so to fill you in on that, the hammer is actually this guy's nickname. And so take that for what it's worth. Uh, he was nicknamed the hammer and j just there's no contest on this. But uh, for bonus credit, all of you out there, if you know his other nickname, if you know this guy's other nickname besides the hammer, well, then just quietly laugh along with me. And uh, and if you don't know it yet, well, then you'll be learning it soon when I produce that new show. So who is nicknamed the hammer? It is our good friend, Congressman Tom DeLay of Texas. He was an incredibly powerful Republican congressman. He was the majority leader for the Republicans in the House for a period of time before being indicted in 2006. In November 2010, he was convicted and we expect in early 2011, he will be sentenced for that crime. So I don't know about you guys, but personally, I'm very excited about uh, hearing how this sentence comes down and uh, and almost equally excited about uh, producing a show about it. So thanks to everyone who uh, played, everyone who sent in their guesses. Uh, congratulations to all the winners who got uh, free memberships to the show. Uh, Damien, Sue Ann, Matt, James, and Chadwick are the five winners of the contest. So uh, congratulations to all. And, uh, and that was fun. I'm glad we did that. So now moving on. I have big news. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know that I you know, pretty regularly ask you guys to do things. Vote for this, uh, you know, donate to that, and so on and so on. And if, for the most part, they're pretty selfish things. They're like, you know, vote for this show on Podcast Alley, vote for this show or friends of this show to get a podcast award. You know, things of that nature that are, uh, you know, kind of self-serving. You guys are supporting shows that you like and so on, um, you know, but it's kind of a self-serving uh, thing to do, which can be okay. But I'm very excited today to uh, begin a campaign that is completely selfless on my part, uh, just to pat myself on the back a little bit, but it's true. And so I was literally alerted to this today, but I jumped on it right away because I know, uh, you know, several of these organizations, I know that they are deserving of our help. And so I have signed up to, uh, to help in the way I'm about to describe. And I want to encourage all of you to do the same. So uh, there is a contest being put on. It's kind of an ongoing contest and it's uh, being sponsored by Pepsi. Uh, I'm not a fan of Pepsi. I, yeah, they are not a sponsor of the show. I'm not getting a dime from Pepsi. I actually uh, actively discourage all of you from drinking Pepsi or anything with uh, high fructose corn syrup in it. So with that out of the way, uh, there's this contest being sponsored by Pepsi where they're going to give away lots and lots of money to organizations that can drum up support for themselves and get votes on this contest and whoever gets the most votes gets a bunch of money. So I was alerted to this uh, campaign, which is, uh, is called the Progressive Slate. And the idea is that 10 progressive organizations have banded together and uh, created the Progressive Slate for this uh, Pepsi uh, big money giveaway. And so all of these organizations, of course, uh, just like everyone else, are struggling for money in a down economy. And if you and everyone you know and me and everyone these organizations can get in touch with goes to this contest and votes for this slate of progressive organizations, 
well, then there's a really decent chance that they could win a bunch of money. And uh, so I looked at the slate and it's, it's, I'll, I'll read them all for you, but uh, three of them I actually personally know. So, uh, so that's, you know, good for me, I guess. <laughs> it, it, it just means that I, uh, I'm that much more confident in these organizations and know that they're deserving of, of money. So, uh, so the slate is uh, the uncommon good, the Energy Action Coalition. We'll get to, we'll get back to them in a minute. The New Leaders Council. I literally just joined this organization, the the uh, Chicago chapter of the New Leaders Council. I literally just joined up with them personally. Uh, the Promo Fund, the Equality Pennsylvania Education Fund, uh, Netroots Nation, uh, which I attended last year for the first time and plan to attend again this year. Uh, that was one of those things that was a really self-serving thing I did last year where I asked you guys to vote for me to uh, send me to Netroots Nation uh, on a scholarship, which you did, and we won, and it was awesome. And uh, so I love Netroots Nation and want to support them. Of course, uh, continuing, there's uh, GLAD, longtime uh, gay and lesbian advocates, and then also the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, JustGive.org, and uh, Beth Meyer, who's a uh, civic leader in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, all of these details, you know, details about all, all the, of the organizations can be found on the website that I'm going to send you to in just a moment. So the idea that this slate of organizations has come up with is to have uh, one central location that uh, you can all go to and sign up to be a, a daily voter. You can actually vote 10 times every day until the contest is over. And I think that, that it runs each month and continues to uh, to run each month. So uh, this is for January, obviously, and you can vote 10 times every day, meaning you can vote once for each of these organizations every day in January. And so you can sign up to actually be alerted every day. Hey, remember to vote for us. And then they give you a simple link and you just go to the link, click, 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 click down, down the list and you're done for the day. If you get really into it, you can then share on Facebook and Twitter and uh, spread the word that way and so on and so on. Of course, what I'm doing is sharing it with you guys on the show like this. So what I've done is I've included a link to where you need to go, the, the link to sign up to be a daily voter, which I highly encourage you all to do. Uh, there's a link in the show notes on the blog. There is a link in the show notes on your actual device embedded in the show notes uh, in the audio file you are probably listening to. So if you hold up your iPod you'll and, and see the show notes, uh, it's right there. The address you're looking for is uh, bit.ly. So it's B-I-T dot L-Y slash progressive slate. You follow that link and it'll take you right to where you need to go to sign up. And they will give you all the details you could possibly need, details on all the organizations, and so on and so on. Now, a moment ago when I mentioned the Energy Action Coalition, they're one of the, the 10 uh, members of the progressive slate, I said we'd get back to them in a minute, and so I'm doing that right now. The Energy Action Coalition, I've actually worked with personally. I've worked uh, for them kind of in a tangential way when I was a climate activist. Uh, they are basically the uh, penultimate uh, youth-oriented uh, climate activists in the country. They are engaged on campuses all over uh, the country, and and their their whole point of existence is to activate, uh, you know, youth activists in the climate fight, 
And so what they have done uh, the best job at, what they are probably most known for, is something called PowerShift. And PowerShift is the name of these giant conferences that they put together uh, in Washington, D.C., to bring thousands and thousands of young people to Washington, D.C., get them motivated, educated, and activated to, uh, you know, get involved in the fight for uh, climate change legislation. And then they go and lobby Congress while they're in D.C. and all those sorts of things that you do. Uh, their first one was in 2007. I was there uh, when it happened. I helped in like the most minuscule way possible. Uh, I, I'm not trying to give myself too much credit. I was just in the neighborhood and, and helped out to some extent uh, in the final days as they were organizing that. And let me tell you, working with these guys was like being in, uh, you know, the, the basement in, in the White House situation room, you know, just uh, small offices cramped full of people working, you know, 12, 16 hour days, uh, posters on the wall, diagrams, everyone with their laptops on their laps, uh, you know, just organizing, 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 uh, getting ready to, uh, you know, to prepare for thousands of people to come and put on a giant conference with, you know, speakers from, uh, you know, the administrations and uh, progressive leaders and so on and so on. Like, it's a really amazing uh, organization that, that puts these things together. So their first one was in 2007, and they had about 5,000 uh, people show up, which was awesome. Uh, the second one they did was in 2009, and they had uh, in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. So they went from the auditorium at the University of Maryland. Uh, they upgraded for the second one, had to go to the big convention center in downtown Washington, D.C. to, to manage uh, the extra people, 10,000 people. This year, they're having it at RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., and I don't even know how many uh, people they're planning on bringing, but uh, if uh, history is any prelude to the present, uh, it's going to be a lot. So again, I actually just found out that their their third power shift was scheduled. I didn't know before today, and it's scheduled for April 1st through the 4th. And so, as I said, I found out about it today. I've basically already decided to go myself uh, and you know do what I can to help probably, uh, you know, record some of it. I'll figure out details later. There will be a show about it if I can manage that. Uh, but I definitely plan to be there. And then on top of all of this, certainly encourage you to do the same. So mark down your calendar for Power Shift put on by the Energy Action Coalition happening in Washington, D.C., April 1st through 4th. And uh, you can Google all of those things and they'll all, you know, details uh, about it will come up. And you can just figure it out yourself from there. So there you go. I said I had a lot to say. I wasn't lying. Hopefully uh, you don't feel like I wasted your time, though. Now I just want to thank a couple of members. Lizette M. signed up for her membership back on September 25th as a leftist. Uh, signed up for a monthly membership and has stuck uh, with the show since then. And Andy H. signed up as a leftist on September 10th and went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Andy and Lizette and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. All of you, of course, can help to support the show in the simplest way possible. Just keep telling everyone you know about it. That's the single best way to grow the audience of the show. And it is uh, really very important, besides just the politics of getting the word out, uh, the economics of a podcast like this really does depend on growing the audience. So please keep that up. 
to stay connected with the show between episodes and help spread the word online. Join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music and the link to the progressive slate that I told you about already, all of that information is posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, we'll take you out.